Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and chessboard Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and weirdzo Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Sandman Volume 5, A Game of You, Chapter 1 from the Sandman comic book series. A Game of You, Chapter 1, was written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by Sean McManus, colored by Daniel Vazo, and lettered by Todd Klein. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Alisa Quitney, cover by Dave McKean. The children of the cuckoo know you. Yes, we know all about you. Time to wake up. In A Game of You, Chapter 1, we are flung into a forbidding snow-covered landscape in the middle of what sounds like an epic fantasy. Luz and Prinidu, unseen, discuss the disappearance of the Tantablin, and we see the hacked-open, charred remains of a dead person, Goblin, holding a scroll. The children of the Cuckoo, we are told, threaten this land and all its inhabitants. We enter a cave, and as the unseen Wilkinson makes the snarky noises of a cynic on the outside... A heroic Martin Tenbones tells the others he will seek a mysterious she who alone has the power to save them all. He will seek her in her other world. That other world, it transpires, is New York City where Barbie, the bubbly blonde from the doll's house, is now living. No longer so bubbly and no longer with Ken. And no longer able to escape into the high fantasy epic dreams we glimpsed during the dream vortex crisis of the previous series. Barbie's neighbor Wanda, who appears to be nearly 6'4 and has an Adam's apple concealed by the high neck of her black bondage gear-inspired outfit, invites Barbie to shop. Waking the sleepy Barbie requires coffee and a search for milk, which leads Wanda to visit her neighbors. Bespectacled, primly-dressed Thessaly, short-haired, terse, cigarette-smoking, tie-wearing Hazel, and platinum-spiked hair, archly sardonic Foxglove, who delivers the goods. The one neighbor Wanda does not ask, nerdy and socially awkward George, passes her on the stairs with a disapproving scowl. Served coffee, Barbie makes herself up in a half-faced chessboard, and off they go. Meanwhile, in the dreaming, Morpheus and Matthew discuss the dying pangs of a distant islet or scary on the far shoals. They discuss the promise of grief ahead and the shiver of transition when a being passes from one state of existence into the other. So... What are you going to do about it, boss? asks the raven. Morpheus replies, Why should I do anything about it? In the subway, Wanda and Barbie encounter a woman begging for money. She becomes petrified when she encounters a small dog and runs from the train, car, and the subway, only to see an enormous shaggy gold canine the size of a truck. This is Martin Tenbones, injured but undeterred, and we are thrown into his POV as he searches for Barbie the princess he calls on to give him courage as he braves the fast hard things that have left him wounded and bleeding. Barbie is just around the corner and we watch with real tension as the police prepare to kill what they assume is a dangerous beast. Barbie, half her face a chessboard, has already lost this opening game when she rounds the corner and witnesses the police killing her heroic dream companion. As the dying Martin finally sees his princess, He tells her to take the porpentine, a jeweled pendant on a chain as it happens, and begs her to fulfill her quest. Collapsing from shock and grief, Barbie is helped back into her room, where she is briefly attacked by a flock of dark birds that vanish like dream visions. Huddled in fear, trying to separate dream from reality, 
she does not register her nerdy neighbor George, who inquired with meek nosiness after her well-being when Wanda first brought her home. But George, like all the others in this house, is not who or what he appears to be. Sitting on the stairs outside Barbie's room, he takes one of the dream birds in his hand and then swallows it whole like a snake, while it calmly consents. Returning to his own room, where a poster of Barbie appears to be the only decoration, he reveals himself, one of the children of the cuckoo. Like Martin Tenbones, he has crossed over into our reality, but unlike Martin, he is alive and well, and his mission is not to help Barbie. Oh my God, Elisa, I can't believe we're back. It's been so fun. I'm so excited to get started on this again with you and to start on Game of You. Now, one of the things, um, like from the start, Game of You was the volume that everybody talked about. Game of You was the volume when you asked Karen Berger in your interview with her what her favorite one was. Uh, she was hard pressed, but she picked Game of You. Um, so I've been like waiting for this for such a long time. You know, this is your second volume. So you were, you know, in, in your seat, you knew what you were doing. And you weren't a newbie to the process anymore. You were you were working on it. Um, I've been really, really excited to read it. And I was a little worried because I was like, you know, you get really excited about something and then you're like, it doesn't live up to those expectations. And expectations can completely ruin, you know, expectations are the thief of joy, right? You know, so I start reading this and I'm like, gosh, I hope this stands up to my expectations. And I have to say, like, it exceeded them. It's such a great start. It's a banging start to the new volume. Um, I didn't really, Barbie was not the character I was most interested in in Doll's House. Um, but already here, I'm much more interested in her. Um, I love Wanda. I love that relationship. I love the complexity with which this is written. I love the reality of the world of uh, Martin Tenbones and the Porpentine and the land and all all of that. Um, I love the crew of characters that we have kind of sort of narrating all the disaster. We're going to die. I'm cold. You know, um, I love all of that. It's just it's really intriguing. I don't know what's going on yet, but I'm in. You know, yes, I'm I'm also very and it's it's so interesting to me. I mean, for me, this is really when, as you say, I was in the thick of the creation of this. I wasn't brand new coming to work every day thinking, oh, my God, they're going to figure out that I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> And uh, I was just very much in 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 the thick of my time at, at Vertigo. Neil and I were spending a lot of time talking at this point. We we knew each other a bit. Um, so I, for me, this is almost like revisiting a childhood fantasy. The 90s was a fairly long time ago now. And, you know, so I look back at this and can, you know, can really feel the memories coming back. That said, I also feel a resonance for me with this storyline. I think, you know, it has famously been discussed that um, Season of Mists was, I think, the most popular fan favorite immediately. And Neela said that it tickled fans where they wanted to be tickled. <laughs> and this, this is different. I, I think in many ways it is one of the most complex storylines. It Neil himself has said it's it's this one of the the storylines that he thinks was the most successful in the sense that as a writer we set out to do things and he had the sense that it accomplished what he had set out to do but i think that there are ways in which the the goth splendor of season of mists really spoke to me in my you know late 20s and early 30s uh, all the sibling stuff this found family 
um, and and this exploration of gender and identity and um, the fluidity and 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 weirdness of identity. This is more resonant to me as a woman in you know her fifties, mm-hmm. and uh, so I'm 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 feeling both nostalgia and a kind of recognition of like oh yes this story speaks to me in the here and now. I love it. Um, I love that it is examining all of these kind of identity things. Um, we've got a lot of different kinds of people. We have Barbie once again in a household community, which I think is honestly the way that we're supposed to be living. That's another topic all entirely. Um, but I, I love that there is this sense of family and community within the home space, which I really love. And then, of course, we've got this element of intrusion and evil within that safe space, which which is not quite as safe as we hoped it would be. Love all of that. I love the, I mean, there's just a couple of things that I'm picking up, you know, like um, here she has a chessboard on her face, but only on half of her face. And I mean, it's called a game of you. And I have no idea what that means. I'll figure it out, I guess, as we go. Or maybe I won't. Maybe it's an ambiguous title. I don't know. But I kind of love that in the opening, we have her dressing as a game. Right. And then that game like falls off her face as she loses Martin Tenbones. She's crying. She's distressed. And it just sort of melts away. Um, I love the way that speaks to identity. You know me. We've had this discussion a million times. And I think this may be part of the reason, among many reasons, why Sandman has been such a delight for me is that give me an identity story, man. I'm in. I love it. Yes. And we, you know, I am going to talk a bit more about the title in, uh, I think it's in Lucien's library. Mm-hmm. So I, I, there's some interesting behind the scenes stuff with that. Yeah. I think it's, it's also interesting because to me, this ties in with a certain theme of, um, split New York's. You know, we've got the cover, the Dave McKean cover. It's split in half. We've got a game of you in this bold, uh, you know, career typewriter kind of font over the New York skyline. Which is a really iconic, yeah, iconic skyline. And then you've got the lower half. You you wrote about it so you know beautifully about you know. Do you want to say more about the cover and oh. how that captures the dual narrative? Yeah, this is McKean's cover. Um, well, yeah, the top half we've got that skyline. Um, there's a red sky which is, insinuates danger, you know, coming, and blue water. And the thing is, is that the water itself can be dangerous, but has this feeling of blue calmness, and it's the only spot in the cover that has that sense of calm. The lower half of the cover has these three people in shadow, uh, two whose faces we can see, all smoking over this warm, grungy background where we see what looks like a building with a fire escape. Sometimes I don't see things properly. I don't know the context and I just assume it's something. But we've got a a little tiny little black cat watching, um, which I love because that feels like Sandman. And we're going to talk a little bit about the role of Sandman in the bigger story and Morpheus and what he does. Um, And the word you uh, written in the upper right corner of that bottom half, but it's written in a way that feels like it's scratched in and revealing light, which is something that I absolutely love about the way that Dave McKean works with mixed media and light. And, you know, one of the faces that we can see has it's split in half and one side is is noticeably larger than the other, you know, and it, it like gives that sense of a split identity, which I really, really love. Um, and there's actually... So, yeah. 
there's like three aspects of the yeah. face, uh-huh. which I think we're going to. I think this theme of maiden, mother, and crone right. that comes in a lot into Sandman is going to be touched on. Mm-hmm. But I also, you know, I also thought how there were movies in the late 80s and 90s that had this sort of dangerous subterranean bohemian mm-hmm. New York beneath the current one. I think that's a little less. I think the subterranean New York has been outsourced to Brooklyn and, <laughs> and, and you know, Kingston, mm-hmm. New York these mm-hmm. days but and other places. But I I think that this is is evoking some of that for me too. And, mm-hmm. and you know, it's, it's interesting because we've got the whole New York aspect, but this is very definitely not an urban fantasy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, I Yeah, it doesn't feel like an urban fantasy. You know, it does have, it has this like straight fantasy feel. When you have Martin Tenbones wandering through the city of New York with his, you know, and again, I love the lettering. I love the way in comics you can feel the voice and the voices of all the people from the land are in this kind of sort of medieval, archaic, calligraphic sort of, you know, feel to that. That you can, that, mm-hmm. that you can still read because Todd yes. Klein, the letterer, is a genius. You know, oh, it's just he's, it's amazing. He's and the won different every colors. Okay, can I just yeah. say how much I appreciate Todd Klein for the different colors indicating who is speaking? Like, because sometimes when you have well, boxes like that, that's you know, Danny Vazo. Oh, that's Danny Vazo because he does the colors. I love everything. I love everything. Everybody <laughs> as a team. No, it's I mean it, it's yeah. such a team effort. No, there's so much, but yeah, the colors that would be Danny Vazo helping. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to have a saying back in the day when things were a little unclear or there was a problem. It was always like, well, color will fix it. it color was coding. Kind of the standing Absolutely. comic joke. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I, you know, and I think that, you know, New York itself, mm-hmm. the New York of the 90s is part of my nostalgia here as Wanda smokes in restaurants and I think yeah. that for all that New York has changed, you know, it's still a place where strangers can become neighbors and neighbors become friends. And it is a place where multiple planes of existence coexist. You know, mm-hmm. you've got the tourist Manhattan and the blue collar Manhattan. You've got historic Manhattan and the little clues there. And, you know, you've got the high fashion Manhattan. And so, but yes, but what's crossing over into this is really high epic fantasy. This is, you know, Narnia and Oz and all of those, um, you know, high epics seeping into into the, you know, the 90s New York City. Yeah, no, I love that. And again, like we do have, you know, just kind of this theme all the way through of these split identities and, and of the complexity of characters being more than one thing, you know, which is something I think that we struggle with. We look at something and we say, this is this, and we want to categorize everything. And it can't be quite that easily done. And when you have this this crash, this transition, you know, from these, these spaces of being where Martin Tenbones manages to go and find Barbie in this city. So he is in a place where he doesn't belong she is not in the place where she belongs which is her dreams which is something else that i think is really interesting here um it's just it, there's so much cool stuff going on and i i've only read it twice um or actually three times in preparing for this you know because i'm going in as cold as i can i do have some sense of what's going on but not a whole lot um and that cold reading 
I, I feel like I've been able to like taste the beginning of the flavors, but there's so much more complexity going on underneath. Um, I'm really excited to move forward with all of that and kind of see where all of those like dual identities and, and triple identities and all of that kind of exist. Yeah, you know, I was looking back. So I have um, I have a few different versions. I so it was so sad. I think I got rid of most, if not all, of my floppies, mm-hmm. uh, the original comics, in uh, a move, you know, more yeah, than ten years ago. But I I have the original trade paperback from I think it was ninety three when it was collected, and Samuel Delaney, the science fiction writer known as Chip Delaney, does this amazing intro in. In his high bender uh, and, you know, Sandman companion, Neil talks about that. Both High and Neil talk about it because it's really worth revisiting. Um, mm-hmm. Chip is such an amazing um, critic and analyst of literature. And he talks about the parallels between the fantasy saga and the real world drama in the series. Um it's something, you know, just sort of keep your eyes out for the ways, you know, Wilkinson, who's mm-hmm. our snarky rat-like guy in the trench coat, he later talks about uh, details about his family and names that has a resonance with what Wanda reveals in this issue about the name she was given at birth, um, family attitudes towards names. Mm-hmm. Barbie's later going to talk about makeup versus tattoos in terms of body art and being fluid in her personhood. So I I think that they're just be on the lookout, you know, for for anyone who's reading along with us, that there are subtle and not so subtle uh, resonances and and rhymes in how these two narratives are are taking place. Yeah. um, Barbie, you know, covering half of her face in I got to put my makeup on, but the makeup isn't what we expect, especially from a character named Barbie who was with Ken and is evoking that sense of Barbie womanhood, right? Which is kind of the... um, the imposed gender expression of femininity um, in a toy that we were all, I mean, I don't know, everybody I knew had a Barbie. Every girl I knew had a Barbie. Um, And we were all kind of given that as some kind of indoctrination of femininity when we were young. And here we have Barbie, who is kind of pushing back against, you never had a Barbie with half a face was a chessboard. Like, we never saw that, you know? Um, So I really kind of love using Barbie. Existential Barbie. Existential. Barbie, I love it. Um, but we really, you know, we've never had a, like a representation of Barbie that kind of flouts those expectations of who and what she is. Um, you know, when back in Doll's House, we saw her, you know, tramping around the land with Martin Tenbones and having all of these adventures where she is the princess, yada, yada. Um, it was just like a dream that she was having, you know, and it kind of made her look like the very princess that we would expect her to be. But here we have kind of a flouting of all of those expectations. And she is more than all of that. And she is unexpected things. And I have the, the you know, anticipation that I am going to see a lot more unexpected things from Barbie, um, which I really love. So you noticed, uh, Lonnie, that, mm-hmm. that Sean is not listed as penciler or inker, but just as artist. Mm-hmm. And that is, Sean is both penciler and inker. And I, I think his artwork here really gives a playfulness mm-hmm. and uh, almost a childlike, you know, children's book illustration quality to some of the panels. And yet, mm-hmm. 
the expressiveness of the faces uh, really, touch, you know, helps deliver the drama. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I mean, I think of Martin Tenbones and that whole um, dramatic death scene. I definitely feel the grief. And he he also is able to show a darkness. This is, you know, it's 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 got a cuteness and a darkness. And I think that, you know, so many of these panels are just really beautiful. Neil chose him um, because of his work on Swamp Thing 32, Pog. Uh, and and that was, you know, again, so, so Neil saw this ability to, you know, hit the emotional notes as well as, as the fantasy and, and, and cuteness. Uh, later on, we're going to see that Sean gets some help. He was not able to do it all on his own because of just time constraints. But I think having multiple artists, you know, we've, we'll get Colleen Doran and, and Brian Talbot coming in to help. And we'll see that in a way, this really adds to the sense of the mutability and mm-hmm. the, the, the different aspects of these characters. Yeah. Oh, no. oh last la- last oh, yes. thing I just it, on Twitter you mentioned like this one wonderful image of Matthew the Raven yes. and wanting to uh, what are you going to do about it, boss? <laughs> I have to say I think the best thing would be a collection of Matthew the Raven tattoos done in all these different artist styles. I may do that after like when we finish as like a celebration of what we've done here is just get all the Matthew the Raven. I have to say like my my favorite Matthew the Raven is still the one where he's got the uh, balloon in his beak and he's running off, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I love... Kelly Jones. Oh, Kelly Jones, God. I, I love the... Um, the Matthew the Raven uh, visuals and his personality and everything about him. And just that moment, what I said on Twitter was that I read that panel where, uh, what are you going to do about it, boss? You know, and I just like, I feel that so much. Like when I'm sitting there trying to figure out a problem or something's going on, that is my inner voice being like, yeah, are you going to do something about it? Because if you're not going to do anything about it, shut up. Right. You know, and I just kind of have that in my head and it's really neat. I love the have that representation in a, in one panel. Well, you know, I've never like Barbie will later mm-hmm. admit, you know, that she has trouble committing to the permanence of a yes. of a, a tattoo mm-hmm. as an expression of her identity. I've just discovered that there's uh there are these things, ephemeral tattoos, they're real tattoos made out of very biodegradable all natural inks Ooh. that fade within a year. <gasps> Interesting. Yeah, I have a problem with that, too, because I always feel like um, like if I had chosen tattoos in my 20s that were still on my body now, I don't know that I would necessarily like feel, you know, like that. I have a friend, Joshua Unruh, who is my co-host on In the Gutter, which is our comics book uh, podcast that we do together. Um, He has told me a million times, he's like, just do it. Just get it done. It's just art. It's art on your body. It's fine. You don't have to worry about it. And when you start, you just keep getting more. And then eventually it grows as a whole curation of images that represent you in time. And then it doesn't feel like you've got this one thing, you know. And I'm like, yeah, that's definitely something to think about. But like, I still do not have a tattoo, but I keep thinking about it. And Sandman makes me want to get tattoos. Okay, so here's here's the thing for me. I am a person who has spent a lifetime getting and growing out bangs. Yes. And so I just, I assume, you know, because it's not just the mm-hmm. image, it's the placement. It's So yeah. I don't know. Here's my thought. If you, I, I've noticed there's a place in Brooklyn, which is close to me. Yeah. I figure, what if we commit for a year? And then if we l- love the tattoos, we could always have it we be permanent. We can always get it again, what if, yeah. 
You want to go get matching? Let's do it. Oh my God. Let's <laughs> totally do it. Ephemeral tattoos. Let's um, totally anyway. do it. Yes. We'll put it up on TikTok or something. <laughs> the experience, <laughs> me and Elisa in the, uh, in the city. That'd be awesome. Um, okay. One of the other things that I absolutely love here um, is Wanda, right? Um, and just to give everybody a heads up, uh, Wanda is a, a transgender woman. Um, and so there are a lot of issues with the discussion of that representation within stories. And I think that like, at least, and I had a conversation about it. And I think that what we're going to do is we're going to let the story finish. And then we're going to talk about overall how those issues are addressed. In this opening um, issue, I was like, wow, that's amazing. Like that she is absolutely treated as a woman, which is what she is. And the text acknowledges that there are people within the text you know, characters in stories are not always perfect. And we it's good that we have representation of people who are not understanding that that is this reality. That is our reality is Wanda is a woman. Um, and uh, and I absolutely like it. So far, I love it. I think we should wait until we get to the end. So there are a lot of transgender um, issues that we're going to be and definitely issues of identity and all of that that's going to get super crunchy, I anticipate, in Game of You. Looking forward to having all of those discussions. Um, but the discussion of transgender representation, Elisa and I, as straight women, uh, do not feel really qualified to say how well this is done, everything. But we will be having discussions with people who are qualified uh, uh, to talk about that towards the end. So uh, what we're going to ask you to do is what we're going to do, which is we're going to set that aside. We're going to talk about the story. We're going to work through the story. And then we're going to have a good discussion that really dives into all of this stuff. But immediately, I have to say, I, I absolutely loved Wanda. I loved the way that she was represented. I loved that she wasn't a perfect little princess human being that on the uh, subway, you know, she's kind of mean and dismissive to this poor woman who is afraid of dogs, who is, you know, clearly in a state of needing assistance and asking for help on the subway. Um, and I just I really love the way that um, that she is allowed to be a full expression of human. And we're not making her perfect because we're like, oh, let's tiptoe run. People are fully human and fully human means that you don't always behave in the societally approved, like perfect way. Um, but I also love the way that she kind of addresses the compassion fatigue there, right? That like, if I, you know, if I felt everything for everybody who's got a problem in this city, I wouldn't be able to leave my house, you know? Um, really love that. I really love when, um, Barbie says, Alvin, that's your real name. She says, Wanda's my real name, Barbie baby. Alvin's just the name I was born with. Hell yes. Love it. Yes. And also, though, you know, Wanda doesn't get pissed off. She understands that, you know, this is not ill intention, but Barbie exactly. doesn't understand. And I think, you know, I mean, again, we talked a little before about how much does one do a close reading? And, mm -hmm. you know, all of you English majors out there uh, know that a close reading means you only limit yourself to the text mm -hmm. and not to authorial statements of intention. And uh, by the way, Dumbledore's gay. But, uh, you know, if, if it's not in the text, then you if don't discuss it. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's useful to know because this isn't, you know, uh, an English class that, you know, Back in the 90s, when this was really not common, Neil did, you know, speak to people um, who had firsthand experience of uh, of the transgender experience to inform him in the writing. Mm -hmm. And this was, 
you know, nowadays it's become, I guess, you know, what do you call it? You know, better preferred practice or mm -hmm. um, what, what is the term? I'm losing my mind. But, but in the 90s, especially with a monthly comic, I don't think that that was um, – that, that was not assumed that that's what everyone was doing. Right. So, he did then what we advise people to do now and which still people are like, what? I have to talk to somebody with that experience in order to be able to write about them. And you do have to do you have to be willing to do the work to unpack so many things that are like installed in us from the time. Like I was talking about the Barbie indoctrination. Right. That's just one of a million indoctrinations that we have. Um, and so generally, I like to let a text talk for itself, right? At the same time, I think that we are at a point culturally uh, where we are just beginning to learn how to embrace things in a complex way, right? How to see that nothing is one thing or the other thing. And let me tell you, a game of you, where we have half a chessboard face, where we have all of these split identities, where we have all of these worlds that are, you know, like crashing into each other, is such a wonderful space to have a conversation about complexity. I mean, I do a lot of work um, with Joss Whedon stuff, right? And Joss Whedon has recently been discovered to be a, a person with a lot of problems um, dealing with his own power and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and, and when it comes down to it, like my response to that has always been, A, there's more than one person working on this stuff. B, the material itself is, you know, its own thing. And if that speaks to you, then you should engage in it, you know. And when you buy stuff that's like Buffy or whatever, it's going to everybody who worked on that, like everybody who gets residuals from it. And a lot of those people are the victims. So I don't want to like deny them their money, you know, after what they put up with. Um, bottom line is, you really need to be able to look at things complexly. And I think that we, uh, especially in American culture, which is what I can speak to, truly, truly struggle with that, with not seeing everything as a binary that is either one thing or another. So yes, generally, I like to let the text speak for itself. Um, I do think that impact is more important than intent. But I don't think that means that intent doesn't matter. Like, we, you know, we have to embrace all of these things. I love that Neil spoke to people with this actual experience before writing their story, um, that he did that in 1993 is also really impressive. And that it comes out in a way that that demonstrates earlier. a lot of the things. Yeah, earlier, because this came out in 93. So he was working on it before that. No, I, I think actually it was the trade came out in 93. Oh, so this is okay. 91, 92. Wow. Um, yeah, it is, I mean, it is so long impressive. ago that... I just want to say that in those days, high-waisted jeans had absolutely no give. And I, I just want everyone to understand, I don't know, for the young people now mm -hmm. wearing high-waisted jeans, sometimes there's a little give. It was understood. We didn't talk about it, but we all knew yeah. that after every freaking meal, you had to undo the top button of your jeans. <laughs> that was just, it was accepted. I, I think it was. I mean, look, come at yeah. me if you think I'm wrong. Right. So what we're saying is times were different then. Um, but the approach to this, I'm really enjoying. I'm really appreciating. I think that we're going to have really wonderful conversations about it that can take a look both at the text and on its own and whatever impact it may have had. And the fact that things were done at this time to represent a group that was not represented, not represented well, generally. Do we remember the crying game, which was also about this time frame, right? Um, and to have this done with consideration um, and respect for that perspective, I, I love it. I love it. 
And, you know, the the other thing that I think is interesting here is that, you know, this was done as a commercial comic. This is mm-hmm. before Vertigo was Vertigo. And, you know, and, you know, and it dares to have Sandman, you know, is there in a small role. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, if he was sort of not a principal player in all of these storylines, he's definitely far off. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think in, in, in a... Um, Sandman King of Dreams, I wrote that if the castle is located in Moscow, you know, this whole (laughs) main story is going to take place in Uzbekistan. It's really far from the main Mm -hmm. dreaming action. And at first, you know, we see Sandman doesn't, um, you know, he's... He sees no reason why he should be involved with the tragedies of this. Like Wanda, you know, how much compassion can he have for everybody? Compassion fatigue, right? I mean, I kind of love that. And here we have Sam, like, to me, like, and I I haven't read, you've talked about the horror hosts, right? And my understanding is that they introduce a story, the story happens, and they close it up at the end, you know? Um, But here we have Sandman coming in sort of in the middle, you know, giving a little context, having this conversation with Matthew. um, And then why should I do anything about it? You know? As, like these these little islets of dream they come they go they die they live you know it's it, this is how it works um and i find that such an interesting kind of space for i mean this is sandman this is a sandman comic and yet as often as not maybe more often than not so far we have seen these stories not necessarily be like about morpheus you know morpheus it's about the dreaming and it's about the people interacting with the dreaming but it's really not about him he's just sort of watching um so i find him interesting as like a watcher you know um and somebody who like we will visit to give context um but it's not really his story i think that's really kind of neat yeah and i think you do gain something as well in in a king of dreams i wrote it's easy to demystify a hero just keep him on stage too long right. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. And that's the thing is that he he does maintain his um, his mystery. And like, especially after having read this, you know, issue, looking at that cover again, where we've got the cat just sort of sitting there in the middle, just kind of watching everything, you know, keeping an eye on stuff. Um, And why should I do anything? Right. Why should I interfere? This is how it goes. Right. Such an interesting perspective. And then you've got, of course, Barbie. You know, who Wanda in the beginning calls Princess Barbie. Absolutely love that, you know. Um, And we've got Barbie whose heart is completely out to it's out to this woman who's afraid of dogs. And then that woman, of course, runs into Martin Tenbones and that's her worst nightmare. You know, Um, her heart goes out to Martin Tenbones, who she can barely remember from these dreams she hasn't been having for a couple of years. Um, All of that, I think, kind of comes together to to set up a story that I think is going to be more complex, more nuanced, lots of lots of chewy stuff to to talk about. I'm real excited. And you caught something really interesting about the I don't like dogs lady. She's always called the I don't like dogs lady. Right. She's been discussed. Um, so you pointed out that she's repeating, I'm yeah. scared of dogs. I don't like dogs. I don't like dogs, which is very unusual in comics. Right. And... I took that as, you know, she's caught in a moment the way traumatized people yeah. often are. Mm-hmm. She's caught in this moment. She's, she's um, you know, repeating it almost as a, a reminder and a warning to herself. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, she gets, you know, confronted by 
the cutest dog of all time. <laughs> the um the thing that's interesting about this is mm-hmm. well, two things for me. One is, you know, Martin Tenbones talks about the people who are killing him as frightened people. Yeah. He is aware that, you know, she's a frightened person without a weapon. Mm-hmm. But you know the cops are frightened too. They are. There are a lot of frightened people in this in this world. Martin Tenbones was saying, and the idea mm-hmm. that frightened people can be dangerous people is is in here. But uh, also, the I don't like dogs lady was actually based on a, a real person. Uh, Neil encountered her on the underground in in England, uh-huh. and she f- really freaked out um, at the sight of a puppy on someone's mm-hmm. lap. Well, but, uh, yeah. And yeah. I mean, I love that because we do have that discussion about uh, compassion, right? You know, because the fact is that like for all of Barbie's compassion for this woman, she does give her a little bit of money, but it doesn't make a difference in what she's going through, you know. Um, yeah. And she, this woman, like to say, I don't like dogs. I don't like dogs. I'm scared of dogs. I don't like dogs. All of that to be repeated again, like in a, a form that prizes, I think, efficiency as one of its main, you know, things that it does. Like comic books need to be efficient. There's so much to, so when words are repeated, when something is repeated over and over and over again, um, I feel like that is incredibly meaningful. And to have her caught in this traumatic moment, to be someone who is representative of fear, you know? Um, And then we've got these two sides, like empowered fear, where you've got police with, you know, weapons who are you know, pointing them all at this at this dog, right? Um, and disempowered fear and how those, you know, kind of express themselves. Yes, empowered fear is extremely dangerous um, because what people do when they are afraid is not necessarily always reasonable. Um, so I really do kind of like love that that repetition, even though it feels like it it goes against the the innate efficiency of comic book storytelling. That if if in comic book storytelling, they're repeating something, it's important, you know? So I really, I kind of liked that. Um, and it just, all of it, I thought was, was really neat. And then we get to the end where we have George eating a bird, you know, <laughs> a bird that looks a little bit like Matthew. I got to say, I was a little bit upset because, you know, Matthew is my bird. I love Matthew. <laughs> um yeah, it's uh, it is creepy, and we you know we have this the people in this land talking about the children of the cuckoo, right? And what that means, we just know that they're dangerous. We know, but when we see George's face as he swallows this bird, um, and the it, it feels like a consensual, way. but it's like a consensual yeah, like the swallowing. It's not in. like the birds fighting him. Yeah. The birds just like the birds like this I is guess where this, I go. I guess is how it's going to be, right? Um, and yeah, it's so much. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, you know, the, the intense creepiness of that calls into question not just what is George, but what is that bird? You yeah. know? Mm-hmm. Oh, God. It's, um, I think it's a crow. I can't, I wish I could find my script. I don't have the original yeah. script for that one. Mm-hmm. So, Neil, if you're listening, he'll correct <laughs> I could us. Use, I looked through, I looked through the scripts. I couldn't find the script yeah. to that one. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a black bird, right? Um, but a black bird is, uh, you know, feels like Matthew to me in every context. And so interesting because we have all these dualities of existence. Does it mean something? Is it about Matthew? Uh, the ingesting of a dream. I mean, we see that bird oh, originally. Yeah. 
Yeah, but there's also, I mean, a whole different brand of bird. There's cuckoos. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if um, Americans are as familiar with what cuckoos really are. Mm -hmm. So I, I just... I just know about the clock. Okay, so you know what? Let me take... This isn't in our script, yes. but I should probably take a moment. Absolutely. So um, uh, my kids are half uh, English. Their dad mm -hmm. uh, is, is British. And in England, you have cuckoos. And I've actually seen a cuckoo in a nest. It is mm -hmm. so... Freaking weird. Basically, the cuckoo goes around and it lays its egg in other birds' nests. Mm -hmm. And that egg is bigger and that chick is bigger. And when it hatches, it eats all its siblings. Oh, wow. I mean, it's not real siblings, right? They, they are the not it biological eats the siblings. the other babies, yes. It eats the other babies. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and, and well, does it eat? Wait, you know what? I may be wrong. It may not eat the other babies. I'm wrong. It shoves them out of the nest. Uh, and just by being the biggest, loudest one, it, it gets more food than the others. So oh they, they the parents, I'm sorry, it doesn't it doesn't eat them. It just that is yeah. that is me thinking in Sandman terms, but it does end up crowding out all the others. So the cuckoo oh. is the you know, it's it's the bird that that is not it it has taken over. It's an invasive. And what's oh. What's really interesting is from that, we have the word cuckold. Uh, a uh -huh. cuckold in old terms was a man whose wife had, had cheated on him and therefore yeah. his children might not be his children. So interesting. I love the etymology. Bird, birdology. <laughs> what is bird uh, uh, over uh, oh, oh, God, my daughter would know. I don't um, know. I don't know. Yeah, but I love that. But, and, so there's, well, there's a lot clocks. of bird stuff. Right. So yes. how did the cuckoo get in the clock is what I'm curious about. How did this be a representation I, that people wanted letting them know what the hour was every hour? I think it is that distinctive cuckoo, cuckoo yeah. sound, which is, I think, how the bird got its name. It is named for its call. I'm not sure how it became crazy. But, you know, this mm -hmm. might be a nice moment for us to go <laughs> into Lucien's library. Yes, I think the timing, no, no pun intended, is perfect for that. <laughs> we'll go ahead and take a quick break and we'll be back with Lucien's library in just a minute. Okay, welcome back. So here we are in Lucien's library where we discuss esoterica, Easter eggs, uh, Hanukkah, <laughs> Afikomans, discussions that include spoilers. And uh, and any little bits of cool tidbits that have remained clinging to the uh, dustbin of my mind. <laughs> I love it. This is always my favorite part of the whole discussion because I get to just listen to you talk about stuff that I had no idea about. Well, these days, you know, I, I do cheat uh, to... to uh, get my memory going. I look at high benders stuff. Mm -hmm. I look at the boards to see if I've written anything. I did not on the mm -hmm. Game of You boards. I had no notes to myself, <laughs> to my future self. So, mm -hmm. um, but here are some things. Uh, minor characters becoming major players. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things we've discussed with Neil is how you get the feeling that even a minor character, like I don't like Dogs Lady, mm -hmm. uh, feels like someone with a, a, a backstory. Yeah. But here we're actually getting the fuller stories with characters who were who were featured in other storylines. Barbie, we've discussed. But mm -hmm. Foxglove is Donna Kav wait, I'm having a moment. Kavanaugh? 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 I'm I'm suddenly having a brain 
fart, which would be spelled F A U G H R T. But anyway, it, she was the lover of Judy from the oh, uh, diner in the Twenty Four Hours storyline. Nobody's ever going to forget Twenty Four Hours, man. <laughs> and by the way, this is yeah. this is also a very compressed timeline story. Mm-hmm. This all mm-hmm. does take place in about twenty four hours. Of course, yeah. lots of issues. Um, but that's, I think it's interesting that we are getting that, and it's part of what. Um, what gives the sense of the Sandman's being such a, a, a dense and nuanced mm-hmm. universe. I think at one point, uh, Paul Levitz talked about this being something that the science fiction writer Zelazny uh, d- does really well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's like he, you know, Neil Zelazny's very well. Or I like it. <laughs> I like it as a verb. <laughs> so that's awesome. So Foxglove is Donna, who was Judy's lover. And of course, you know, we had Rose as a background character in, yeah. um, you know, in 24 Hours, who ends up becoming, of course, the central character for the whole of, of Doll's House. Um, I love that. Well, so the other uh, behind the scenes thing I can talk about here is the game of titles. Yes. So, um this, this I had to go into High Bender to remind myself. Um, so originally, Neil wanted to call this storyline Inside of Your Heart, which mm-hmm. is a Velvet Underground song title. Karen thought it sounded too surgical. <laughs> the I don't remember that. I do remember Neil discussing the title The Bimbos of Night, uh, which Karen <laughs> nixed. So once both of those previous titles were um, nixed, mm-hmm. Neil said he got kind of remembering the ghost of a memory of a 1965 spy novel called The Game of X by Robert mm-hmm. Sheckley. Uh-huh. This may have come to his mind. He was a, a fan of Robert Sheckley's work, but I uh, was was working and talking with Neil, and he was aware that I am Robert Sheckley's daughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he thought of that Game of X, and so this was originally going to be the game of you. Mm-hmm. And then Dave said, too many <laughs> characters. And so it became a game of you. Uh, also, you know, there are chapter titles. And the so this is Slaughter on Fifth Avenue, which mm-hmm. Neil had said was a mashup on playing on musical theater titles like Lullabies of Broadway and Slaughter on 10th Avenue. Oh, neat, neat. Um, yeah, I didn't see the title for the chapter. I just saw chapter one. So it was Slaughter on Fifth Avenue. I think it is written on that first panel where you see maybe it's removed it maybe in I missed later it. versions uh, where Barbie is lying asleep on, oh, on you know, her bed on her stomach. I, I might have missed it because uh, I, I love those titles that give us, again, again, names, identity, you know, that applies to more than people that can apply to uh, to the story. And I love, too, that, you know, you being a part of this and then your dad is kind of a part of it. I love that. That's such a cool thing. And it makes me really happy. All right. So now I have a question. Um, and since we are in Lucian's library, if I'm going to ask any questions that have anything to do with possible spoilers, I usually try to save it for this. Um, but I was very interested in this idea of who Murphy is, right? Um, we have a few references to Murphy as like a god or some kind of empowered individual. Um, and it's, and his name is Murphy Wilkinson. And then we have Wilkinson, who is the trench-coated, you know, vaguely rat-ish um, character with the press hat. And they call him Wilkinson. And so I was just a little bit confused. <laughs> 
I, I think that was a misreading. I think it's not Murphy Wilkinson. It's just Murphy. Oh, so maybe he was um, saying for the love of Murphy, comma, Wilkinson. And I didn't yeah. see the comma in the elaborate yeah. calligraphic uh, font. Yes, that is entirely likely. Now it makes more sense to me. Because I was like, is he like related to the god? And is Murphy a god? Like who is Murphy is such a I mean, you're looking at this land, you know, this this we've got Martin Tenbones and, you know, and these these characters lose and Pinadu, 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 right? Yeah, Pinadu. So we got all these like really fantasy, high fantasy names, and then we got Murphy, and we got Wilkinson, and I'm like, okay, this is an interesting again, like sort of mashup of unexpected elements. Um, yeah, yeah, there's. I mean, Wilkinson's kind of like that World War II cynical, you know, James Garner. A young James Garner could have played him had right. the young James Garner been a rat. Um, <laughs> James Garner always played these cynical characters who had interesting nuances to them. Um, Well, okay, I did think, by the way, of another. So, yes, with Murphy, Mm -hmm. we will see more. It's that World War II reference in part, but yeah. All right, I'm putting my money down that Murphy is another dreamer. (laughs) We we shall shall see. But I realize, okay, I have another behind-the-scenes thing to say. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, not so long ago, uh, maybe a month or so ago at Symphony Space, Neil was interviewing uh, George R. R. Martin. Mm-hmm. And so I, I bought tickets for Matthew, my raven son, and yes. myself, <laughs> uh, my now adult raven son. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and afterwards, we had a chance to go back and meet George R. R. Martin, which mm-hmm. was just really exciting to yeah. me. So I'm clutching this you know, mammoth book that came with the mm-hmm. the price of entry and and Neil introduced and it's I should say this took place, it started around six, so this is mm-hmm. maybe around eight. Mm-hmm. And um and I'm I'm getting to meet George R. R. Martin. I started to read Game of Thrones back in the nineties when nobody, you know, mm-hmm. knew that how big it was going to be. Yes. And Neil starts to tell a story about who I am. He says, Let me introduce you to Elisa Quitney. She was my assistant editor on The Sandman. And, you know, it's a funny story because mm-hmm. um, I was mentioning something about Robert Sheckley and this uh, book, you know, the, mm-hmm. the game Vex. And she said, what do you think of Robert Sheckley as a writer? And I said, well, you know, I think he was brilliant in the early part of his career in the 50s and 60s with the short stories. And then increasingly, uh, I don't know if it was drugs or what, but he just became too, uh, you know, postmodern, you know, mm-hmm. deconstructing everything as he wrote it. And I said, he's my father. <laughs> and Neil said, oh, my God. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 I'm in complete agreement. Uh, so anyway, George R. R. Martin listens. To, I should say my father didn't raise me, although I was raised by mm-hmm. his, his short stories. I, I, I only yeah. got to know him after the age of 14. But anyway, mm-hmm. at the end of this whole story, George R. R. Martin um, is looking at me with the unmistakable look of a person whose blood sugar is plummeting. Oh, no. And he says, Neil, we've got to get to dinner now. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, you know, this is I, I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't register on George R. R. Martin because and I totally get this because when I am hungry and after a reading like that, I. Oh, it's so exhausting doing public events. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all I would want to do is, you know, and it must be really hard because everybody mm-hmm. wants to have their, you know, intense yes. people moment with you. And instead, mm-hmm. you know, George R. R. Martin was just thinking, oh, please, you know, a little protein, a little carbohydrates. Help me, help me, Mur- you know, help me, Murphy, help me, Wilkinson. Um, 
But, oh, and I'll mention the other thing. I think I've mentioned this on on Twitter, but I mm-hmm. think there's only, you know, um, Merv Pumpkinhead sweeping up the remains of Twitter these days. So who knows who saw it? <laughs> um, so during that conversation, um, George R. R. Martin said, you know, it's writing is such a difficult career because you can be going great guns one year or two years mm-hmm. and then another year not. You know, it, it's a career for people who feel ready to gamble, who are willing to gamble. Yep. And then mm-hmm. Neil said, willing to gamble on yourself. Oh, isn't that wonderful? I love that. I thought that was cool. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, in that wonderful moment, I love that. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about our favorite art. What is your favorite art from this um, issue? Oh, gosh. Um, my favorite art... I think, you know, it's got to be Martin Tenbones. <laughs> I don't know why. Just that, I mean, I I love Martin Tenbones so mm-hmm. much. The the great mythic dog. I am a hugely dog person. Yeah. And, you know, and his his stalwart heroicism. And I yeah. I I mean, mm-hmm. not not that I would want a tattoo of the wounded Martin Tenbones on any part of my anatomy, but I do right. love it deeply. Oh, How he's about you? such a sweet and kind. Yeah, Martin Tenbones, when he comes in and he's all, you know, talking about frightened people and having empathy for the people who are murdering him in that moment. Just incredible and so dedicated to the princess. I love all of that. Um, for me, artwork, it's, it's you know, Sandman and Matthew um, hanging out, you know, seeing how it's all going to go, giving some context. Um, and those pages, too, are just like they're so beautiful with the, the shades of blue and purple and the way that everything with them is kind of this calm, subdued sort of thing where everything else is very bright and very, you know, kind of like active in the moment. Um, I, I love the conversation between them. I love the relationship between them and the art on those pages I think is just incredible um how's how's about the story what do you think is your favorite part of the story oh gosh I mean there's a few different I and I wanted to say about Martin Tenbones and and Barbie yeah that part of the thing I always felt about that moment where he's calling on her as his princess is that when people see us as more we become more yeah that there is that that you know our friends and our, our, you know, intimates are intimate mirrors of us. And in his calling on her as a source of inspiration and strength, you know, it it is beginning to transform her. And like one of my favorite quotes from this issue is her just saying, sometimes I look in the mirror and I don't recognize me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and, and this is, it's been an uncomfortable transformation, but it's, you know, she's going to come into her fuller sense of self. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also just really do love that last image of, you know, George ingesting or reabsorbing the, the psychic mm-hmm. bird. And I, I have to say that, you know, before I knew the rest of this, that's just such a, a cliffhangery and yet mm-hmm. satisfying twist. Oh, yeah, I have to agree. I think that that is absolutely my favorite part of the story because it does this wonderful thing. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it a cliffhanger as so much as it is like this revelation of what it is that mm. we're facing. We've been talking about the children of the cuckoo, you know, and here we have this character who is, you know, like out of everybody in the house where they're all part of this community, they're all really tight. 
we're clearly Wanda is not that comfortable around George. Um, George is, you know, kind of distant, whatever. And sometimes that can just be somebody who's socially awkward and you kind of let that go. Like maybe he's going to be the guy that's socially awkward that comes in and becomes the new Martin Tenbones or something. Um, but then you see him go in and, you know, eat the bird and go from this kind of benign little, you know, expression that you're not really sure if he's, if he's really a bad guy or if he's just misunderstood or like, who, it, who he is. Um, and we see his identity come out in full force and know who our antagonist is. Having an active antagonist is so great. And the thing is, is that you don't need to have your antagonist on the first page. Here, we kind of do, like very, very early, but we don't know that, that this is the antagonist who is active in this world, who is going to be coming after Barbie. And then when that happens at the end of the first issue, I feel the story just snap it's like, here are all the pieces. We know what's going on. Once again, hello, efficiency of storytelling in comics is unparalleled. You know, um, I, I love all of it. And it was that moment where I was like, all right, you, you know, the people telling this story know what they're doing. I'm strapped in. I'm in. I can't wait. You know, so for me, like that was such a wonderful exclamation point at the end of this story. Um, absolutely loved it. Completely invested so excited to to be here talking about this again with you and being back talking about the comics. I love it. I am too. And, uh, you know, it's funny, we've had all the little squeakinesses of, you know, trying to remember how things are done and <laughs> my barking puppy. I have, um, I have an Icelandic sheepdog uh, puppy, eight months old now. And uh, for those who don't know, she is in love with barking. She <laughs> loves the sound of her own voice. She too should have a podcast because she she's always should. saying, burp, 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 burp. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So you may have heard a little bit of commentary from Gilda in the background. Um, we will definitely ask her what she thinks about the death of Martin Tenbones as somebody who is closely, more closely related to Martin Tenbones than any of us. She, she looks a little like mm -hmm. a mini, mini, Martin Tenbones. She's, you know, she's got that colored. I, I think she looks, you know, it's funny. She too, she, she's a very pretty, cute looking blonde. And <laughs> you could mistake her because she's really incredibly tough mm -hmm. and uh, actually a little Viking. So yeah, yeah she, uh... I dig it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I didn't God. mean to say that. That sounds like a pun with dogs, but no, I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> If you've enjoyed this insane discussion and would like to join in, <laughs> Patreon supporters can chat with us and each other through our Patreon Discord channel. To find out how you can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or travel from one state of existence to another and let us observe the consequences. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack I said I would never leave your side, not ever, not while I lived. Thanks so much for joining us. We will be back next time with Sandman Volume 5, A Game of You, Chapter 2. Until then, the scaries are distant islets in the shoals of dream. They live, they die, they come, they go. Why should I do anything about it? <laughs>